Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. We're going to move rapidly tonight because we're going to look at three aspects of the doctrine of salvation, that being justification, where we have been delivered from the penalty of sin, sanctification, where we are being delivered from the power of sin, and then glorification, when wonderfully we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. And so all three of these are a part of Article 4 on the doctrine of salvation in the Baptist faith and message. And in particular, Romans 3, 21 through 31 is a wonderful text that is drawn upon repeatedly in the context of our justification. And so Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, how? By his grace, how? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a satisfaction. Literally, it says a mercy seat where the blood was uh, poured out in the tabernacle in the temple and propitiation was made for sins, uh, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his long-sufferingness, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, through faith in Christ whom we receive his righteousness to our account, we actually establish the law. And so moving into Article 4 on the doctrine of salvation, at its end, three doctrines in particular, or three facets or aspects of salvation are highlighted. Note them with me. Justification. It is God's gracious and full acquittal. They're on page 2. The full acquittal upon principles of his righteousness of all sinners, the, the means who repent, and believe in Christ. Justification then brings the believer unto a relationship of both peace and favor with God. And that's very nicely and concisely stated. Sanctification is the experience beginning in regeneration, the moment of our conversion, by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. Growth in grace should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. 
And then glorification only receives a single sentence. And to be fair, it is not talked about all that often in the Bible. And you find it usually uh, spoken to in short um, um, uh, amounts when you find them in a theology book or even like in this confession. Glorification is the culmination of salvation and is the final blessed and abiding state of the redeemed. Well, I give you then a number of key texts there on page two and also on page three. We read the Romans three text a moment ago. Look at the second one at the bottom of page two, Romans five, nine through eleven. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, picks up on that Romans three language. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, uh, for if when we were enemies, we were and three times you'll see the word reconciled occur here. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Look at page three, the very famous Romans eight twenty-eight through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, this has sometimes been called by theologians the golden chain of salvation because you move from predestination to calling to justification and also to glorification. Romans 8:33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Well, really, no one. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Romans 10, 9 and 10, very familiar verses that you share if you use the Roman road as a method of sharing the gospel. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will or shall be saved. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, the him being a reference to God the Father, who became for us wisdom from God and, note the three words, he is our righteousness, he is our sanctification, and he is also our redemption. Two of my favorite verses in all the Bible, 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then the question, what does sanctification look like in the life of a believer? Well, Galatians 5:22 is very helpful. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And saying it differently, but very related to the idea of sanctification, Ephesians 2.10, for we are His 
workmanship. The Greek word poema. We get our English word poem. I saw one translator use the word masterpiece. I like that. For we are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which beautifully puts together our role in sanctification, but also God's role in sanctification. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, when Paul says, I'm not even there, work out, doesn't say work for, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, but do it knowing it is God who is working in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. But praise God, as we work it out, it is God who is working in us to do his good pleasure. So let's first of all look at the issue of justification, dealing with the penalty of sin. We'll then move to sanctification, the power of sin, and then finally glorification, eradicating the very presence of sin. One of the most amazing statements in the Bible occurs in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. Here Paul instructs his readers that God, whose character is that of infinite, perfect righteousness, and who is the standard bearer of perfect justice, actually, quote, justifies the ungodly. Now, if you just think for a moment, that statement is nonsensical. How could anyone, much less God, who is perfect righteousness, justify those who are ungodly? Well, we raise the question, page four. How can God justify, that is, declare righteous the ungodly, those who by nature, thought, word, and deed are thoroughly unrighteous? Let's be specific. Allowing Stalin, Hitler, Mao... Pol Pot to stand before a court of international justice and be declared fully and totally innocent in the face of genocide and despicable war crimes would pale in comparison to the hard betrayal of justice indicated by this phrase, perpetuated by none less than God the Almighty. You say, wait, 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 time out. I've not been as bad as Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot. When you stand in the presence of a perfectly holy, righteous God, you're right. You're much worse. I'm much worse. It's one thing to compare yourself against these kind of people. It's another thing to compare yourself to the perfection, infinite perfection of a holy, righteous, perfect God. It's a completely different uh, comparison altogether, isn't it? And... The BFNM article on justification actually affirms that justification is God's full, I love the phrase, His full acquittal of sinners. Not partially, not mostly. We have a full, innocent standing before God. We stand as morally not guilty of all our sins and all of our willful disobedience against Him. Thus, what theologians have called the problem of divine acquittal threatens to bring the holiness, the righteousness, the justice, and the moral nature of God and His ways cascading down the perilous cliffs of moral disillusion and anarchy. But, praise God, this is the gospel. While it would be entirely just for God to justify the righteous, 
of which, as we just read a moment ago, there are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or, while it would be entirely just for God to condemn the ungodly, which we all are without exception and which we deserve, in fact, God has designated the means by which he can legally, the Bible uses legal categories, Morally, the Bible again uses ethical categories and righteously justify the ungodly. So the million dollar question, on what basis can God justify the ungodly? Well, the Bible and this article wonderfully highlights three facets that provide the answer. First. The ground of the sinner's justification is the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 24. As this article puts it, God justifies how? Upon principles of his righteousness. Indeed, Romans 3, 25 and 26 explains how this can be. In the shed blood of Christ... The sinless and innocent sin bearer, God indeed demonstrated his righteousness. Top of the next page. God satisfies his just demands against our sin by judging our sin in and through. It's the key phrase in the whole thing. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. God then is just to justify sinners insofar as their sin is fully judged and paid for in and by His Son. And this is not unique to me, but I love to say it this way. Christ took what was ours, sin. He gave us what was His, full righteousness. And indeed, Luther, the great reformer, called this the great divine exchange. Second, the condition of the sinner's justification is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Since the sinner's offense, his sin against God, requires an infinite payment to an infinitely holy God, no amount of human works could ever satisfy God's demands against us. We could never, ever, ever, ever be good enough to earn our way into the presence of God by what? We do. Imagine for just a moment that by some miracle of God from this day forward and for the rest of your life, you never again committed a single sin. That's wonderful. But what about yesterday and your past? Who's going to account for that? Who's going to pay for that? Amazingly, justification in Jesus as he bears the full penalty of our sin justifies us of our past sin, of our present sin, and of our future sin. He takes care of all of it from beginning to end. Thus, salvation by works is laughable. It's tragic to even believe it in light of the infinite weight of our guilt and the infinite payment required to remove it. Indeed, we need someone to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel. But since God in his purposes has sent his son to take the sinner's place and pay the sinner's penalty, God now requires only that the sinner repent of sin 
and exercise faith in Jesus Christ, receive the benefit of Christ's payment credited to him as righteousness or as our justification. In other words, we just hold out our hand and we receive the free gift from God of perfect righteousness of our justification, something we could never earn but only receive by faith as a free gift. Third, then, the dual motivation of a sinner's justification is God's abundant grace towards sinners and God's longing to bring glory to his name through their salvation. So there's grace and glory, grace and glory. We receive the grace and God gets the glory. What a wonderful deal. Thus, the sobering truth is this. God could be just and only must by requiring all sinners to pay the penalty of their own sin. If so, eternal, never-ending, conscious, despairing torment would rightly be meted out to all without exception and with no appeal nor basis for complaint. But Romans 3.26 tells us that God sought to be the just one and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is interesting to note, and I don't know how it got missed, but verse 26 of Romans 3 is not listed as one of the references on the doctrine of salvation. But again, it is so crucial. He did so to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that, and my following the ministry, Paige Patterson, has often said the most important verse in all the Bible may be Romans 3:26 that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so he chose to be just, but he chose a path of justice by which he would also be gracious declaring us righteous by faith in Christ and his substitutionary death on our behalf. Thus, such grace yields endless glory to God. As Paul says in Romans 3.27, where is boasting? The answer is nowhere down here, but only up there. And such grace then results in endless goodness to acquitted, forgiven sinners. The great reformer Martin Luther rediscovered the biblical teachings about justification by faith alone and experienced liberation of his soul. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, most historians would note that with minor exceptions, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone disappears from the church in the third, fourth centuries, and it does not reappear until the time of Luther in the 1500s. In fact, though you can find pockets of believers along the way, uh, the medieval Catholic Church was growing in its development of the sacramental system. And therefore, from about uh, 400, maybe even 300, up until 1500, for the most part, the church experienced darkness in terms of its understanding of justification by grace through faith alone, alone, Luther, and then Calvin, and Zwingli, and later Knox, and the Anabaptists all come together in the 16th century, the 1500s, and rediscover this wonderful, glorious doctrine. James Boyce, one of the founders of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, commented on the importance of justification, stating, quote, no doctrine of Scripture is more important than that of justification. The biblical language then of justification functions as one of the key themes of Scripture. 
Justification and righteousness in certain instances are actually synonymous terms. And here's the context or, or the picture that you get from it. The legal courtroom provides the background for understanding the biblical concept of justification. You say, how so? God functions as the judge in the courtroom. Individual human beings stand condemned before the righteous judge because they did not conform to his standard. Whereas an individual may feel subjectively guilty, a sinner is actually and truly and genuinely objectively guilty. Thus, the Baptist faith and message properly defines justification from this courtroom background. It is, once more, God's gracious and full, complete, total acquittal. God the judge declares guilty sinners acquitted of guilt. Now, I use a phrase in this next sentence because liberal theologians in recent years have called justification nothing more than a legal fiction. It's something that is foreign to the Bible, and therefore it is a wrong-headed way to think about how we have been saved and from what we have been saved. No, justification is not legal fiction, as some non-evangelicals claim. Neither does justification mean that God makes right. In other words, He declares you right. He declares you just, but you're not just. You're not right. Only Christ is just. Only Christ is righteous. But His justice, His righteousness, His perfection is now put to your account so that God doesn't see you. He sees Jesus in your place. Therefore, in justification, God upholds His holy righteousness in that he set forth the death of Christ as a satisfaction, a propitiation for sins. The one without sin bore the penalty of sin to bring humans into a right standing with God. Thus, in God's act of justification, a believer receives the gift of righteousness. Generations ago, godly theologians called this alien righteousness. You say, why would they use that phrase? Well, the word alien just means foreign. And what that phrase meant was you have received a righteousness from another. You have received a righteousness that is not your own, but rather has been given to you from another outside of yourself. And, of course, that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. So bring justification to a close. Through a believer's union with Christ, top of page 7. This describe, is described by Paul, uh, by Paul with the phrase, in Christ. Thus, God considers or reckons a believer's righteousness or to be righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been, and we used to use this word a lot, imputed. It has been imputed or placed to the account of the believer. Hence, as the Baptist faith and message cites, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is our righteousness. This gift of righteousness then, as Paul says and the FNM says, excludes all boasting or self-righteousness. In 1678, what is called the Orthodox Creed of General Baptist, it's a non-Calvinistic confession, carefully analyzed justification, basically using what we could call here uh, the categories of Aristotle. The agent, or that is the efficient cause of justification, is God's free grace, Romans 3.24. The ground, or the meritorious cause of justification, is the blood of Christ, Romans 3, 25. The material cause, that is the stuff of which something is made of justification, is Christ 
active obedience. The essence or formal cause of justification is the imputation of Christ's obedience for us, and the means, the instrumental cause of justification, is faith, and the purpose or the final cause of justification is God's glory and man's salvation. And so I do think it crucial for us to understand tonight that at the very heart of the Bible, and at the very heart of the work of Christ is the fact that Christ, in dying on the cross, bore in full the penalty of our sins, and therefore, by faith and repentance, we give Him what is ours, our sin, we get from Him what is His, His perfect righteousness, and therefore, we stand before God just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd always lived a morally perfect upright, holy, righteous, good life. We get both his passive obedience and his active obedience put to our account in the doctrine of justification. And again, if you come along and say, well, you know, that's just all that theological uh, mumbo-jumbo that really isn't relevant to where we live today, then you are foolish. Uh, you are out to lunch theologically, and you really don't have a good grasp of your salvation unless you understand the doctrine of justification. Well, is justification the end of the story? No, it is just the beginning. It lays the foundation for our sanctification, which is dealt with also in the Baptist faith and message. Now, let's attack it for a moment. For some, sanctification is associated with things like abstaining from certain kinds of behavior or practices. Uh, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with, go with girls who do. Uh, you don't go to movies, you don't go to dances. You, you don't, 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 you don't. That, that's how some people think about it. All right, I, I, I had grandparents like that. And I, I doubt my grandparents ever went to a movie. I think they probably think it was an evil, wicked, sinful thing. Maybe some of you think that. That's your problem or your business, not mine. You, you know, what's not a faith is sin. So if it's sinful for you to go to the movies, then you shouldn't go. It, it ain't sinful for me, so I go. And uh, furthermore, I'm married to a woman that wishes she could live in a movie theater. And so part of my calling to make my wife happy, lovers Christ for the church, is take her to some movies. So I take her to some movies. But for others, young people, well, it's associated with a lack of enjoyment and fun. Sanctification just means I go around looking like I've been fact vaccinated with pickle juice. And I just have a sour, dour disposition. And being a Christian is no fun. There's no joy. And why would you want to be one? Well, that is, and I say next, a misguided and badly distorted notion of sanctification. So let's try to get at it biblically. Biblically speaking, sanctification is hardly a negative thing. In fact, at its heart, not only does it mean that we are set apart from sin, that's actually a good thing, and the disaster results that it brings, that's a good thing, but sanctification also entails that we are set apart and consecrated unto the Lord to be with Him and to honor Him and to serve Him, and as John Piper is so good at saying, to enjoy Him. Sanctification is that part of the Christian life where we enjoy our God and being a part of what He is doing. Thus, Christians are united to Christ by faith, and as justified believers, they are now being renewed and wonderfully conformed to the likeness and the image of our glorious Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said a moment ago, raise the question again, when does sanctification begin? Add a second question, when does it end? Well, the Baptist faith and message correctly notes that it begins in regeneration. In regeneration, conversion, God brings about and grants to us new life in Him. 
Thus, as a result of this new life in Christ, we begin actively empowered by the Spirit of God to live a new life unto God. And here's what the Baptist Faith and Message says. Toward moral and spiritual maturity, such that we find growth in grace and we continue that through that throughout the regenerate person's life. So we move toward moral and spiritual maturity, growth in grace that continues to the day we die or until Jesus comes again. Thus, in sanctification, we press on with an active dependence upon the Lord. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but knowing it is the Lord who is working in you both to do and to accomplish His good will. So we move forward depending upon the Lord, but pressing toward the Lord. So we continue to grow in grace, being ever conformed to the image of our Redeemer, and looking with eager anticipation for that blessed appearing of our Lord when we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That, of course, is our glorification. Sanctification, then rightly, biblically understood, has a threefold meaning. A present possession by virtue of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ. A progressive, and that's the way we normally use the word, a progressive, lifelong process of God-dependence, uh, of God, a process of God, uh, a dependent effort on our part, and then a future anticipated completion, which will result in our Glorification. So, just as we talk about salvation having a past, present, and future uh, tense, there is a sense in which sanctification sometimes looks to the past. Most of the time, we think of it in the present, but also it can even have a future component as well, but that's when it usually is used synonymously in a context for our glorification. Thus, the Baptist faith and message provides an adequate summary of the biblical teachings regarding this doctrine of sanctification with six big observations. I'll move through them quickly first. The Bible describes God as the primary agent of sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 makes it clear God sanctifies the believer. In fact, the Baptist faith and message affirms that sanctification occurs, quote, through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling the individual believer. Second, the Bible underscores the personal activity of the believer towards the realization of sanctification. Now, stay with me here very carefully. In contrast to regeneration and justification, sanctification results from spirit-prompted activity on the part of the believer. The believer, in other words, is not merely passive but actively pursues a life of Christ-likeness and holiness. Let me say it this way before I move on. You cannot become more regenerated. You're either regenerated or you're not. You cannot become more justified. You're either justified or you're not. But you can become more sanctified as through the presence and the power of the Spirit, you are striving to become conformed more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, then, the Scriptures do sometimes highlight the positional nature of sanctification. In fact, the Baptist Faith and Message affirms two key points regarding the positional aspect of sanctification. First, that it begins at regeneration. Second, at the beginning of the Christian life, we are set apart 
to God's purposes. So there it's speaking of the front end of sanctification that takes place at our regeneration, justification, conversion. All right. Fourth, the word of God makes clear the progressive, the progressive nature of sanctification. According to the Baptist faith and message, the Holy Spirit enables the believer to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity. Now, this is an interesting historical note. The Baptist faith and message 2000 here made one change from the Baptist faith and message of 1963 by changing the phrase spiritual perfection to spiritual maturity. And I think that is a wiser and better way of understanding what is taking place in sanctification. Thus, the Baptist faith and message notes that growth in sanctification should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. But you'll never be perfect in this life unless you happen to be alive when Jesus comes again. Fifth, the Bible also establishes the pattern of how we are sanctified. The pattern or standard of sanctification is never another person. The holiness pattern is Jesus Christ. Sanctification, then, is a process by which the believer, aided by the Holy Spirit, grows to be more like the Lord Jesus. Sixth, the Word of God describes the path or the means of sanctification. The Spirit develops holiness through the path of the daily disciplines of the Christian life. And these daily disciplines form holy habits in the life of a believer. Thus, the path of holiness includes what? Focused study of the Word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is the truth. Other disciplines on the path of holiness involve prayer, ministry service to others, and fellowship with believers. In other words, can a person... Become more like Jesus and ignore the regular gathering of a body of believers known as the local church? No. No. Like or not, you need me. And like or not, and I actually like it, I need you. We need one another to grow to be more like Christ. He knew that we needed the help of fellow believers. Thus, Paul illustrates the need for constant diligence on the path of holiness by means of analogies describing strenuous activities such as athletics and warfare. Paul says becoming more like Jesus is like a boxing match. Becoming more like Jesus is like a wrestling match. And more like Jesus, becoming more like Jesus is like running a marathon. So, justification, I've been saved from sin's penalty. Sanctification, I'm being saved from sin's power. Glorification, I will be wonderfully saved from sin's presence. The top of page 10. This aspect should be this, not the. This aspect of salvation is often overlooked. In fact, the Baptist faith and message itself devotes only a scant 17 words and one sentence to its explanation. But theologian Wayne Grudem, a Baptist, says glorification is this, quote, the final step in the application of redemption. It will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like His own. That's the best way of highlighting it. Perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Thus, the doctrine of glorification has to do not only with the perfecting of our material bodies, 
but with the immaterial aspects of our being since the total person has been made in God's image as well. In other words, he is going to glorify my soul, he is going to glorify my spirit, and he is also going to glorify my body. The wonderful truth is God has initiated a good work in us, one which will at last be brought to fruition when Jesus returns. Only then will we finally be perfected in holiness. Our battle with sin will end. Praise God. And we will be entirely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ himself. Hallelujah. We will have put on the imperishable and been clothed with immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. Now, note this next paragraph. Very important. Scripture indicates that Jesus was raised in the same body in which he died. And this will also be the case with Christians. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, Paul provides us with an analogy that seems to compare our glorified resurrection bodies to the relationship existing between a seed and its plant. It is the same organism, but naturally different. There is sameness, but also a glorious difference. A seed, as compared to a full-flowered oak tree, doesn't look nearly as cool, nearly as neat, but it's the same thing, same stuff, but a different manifestation of it. Well, by analogy, in this life right now, you and I are just a bunch of dried-up seeds. And most of us are getting drier and drier and drier, more wrinkly, more death-like. But one of these days, that seed is going to become alive, and it is going to grow into something magnificent, glorious, awesome, wonderful. And again, as the Bible says in the next sentence, when Christ returns, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is part of the good news that we as Christians often neglect, that our glorified bodies will be like Christ, impervious to death, sickness, our souls filled to the brim with righteousness and truth. Again, even the very presence of sin will be eradicated, and the sanctification process will be completed. When we are clothed with a glorified body, our justification and our sanctification will merge as one in our glorification. Thus, as for God's redeemed people as a whole, the glorified state will entail nothing less than a perfect deliverance from everything once entailed by the curse of Genesis 3 itself. As for our individually resurrected glorified bodies, they will never be corrupted. As for our individually glorified souls, they will love God wholeheartedly without reservation or Qualification. And let me quickly also add, and you will know one another in terms of your person. Many times people ask me, well, I know my mom in heaven. Yes, your dad. Yes, your, yes. It's the same you. It's a better you. It's a glorified you. But it is the same Danny Aiken, the same Kenny Getz. It is the same one that's here now, just gloriously, wonderfully resurrected and made perfect forever. Glorification then affirms that the mighty salvation we receive from God encompasses more than the mere salvation of our souls or immaterial aspects. Indeed, the Baptist faith and message affirms our salvation involves the redemption of the whole man. Southwestern Seminary Professor W.T. Connor wisely commented on glorification, saying, Salvation would not be complete, though, without a change of environment as well as a change of character. 
Thus, glorification does entail the resurrection of the body. What will our glorified bodies be like? Well, the Bible just doesn't really say a whole lot. It does tell us this. Our resurrected body will be similar to the resurrected body of Christ, Philippians 3.21. 1 Corinthians 15.42-44, Paul says our future bodies will be incorruptible. They will be glorious. They will be powerful. And they will be spiritual. I would just simply say, that's good enough for me. Glorification then, last two lines of that page, involves the reformation of a believer morally. The New Testament affirms that believers will conform to Christ's likeness. Final page then. Glorification means a respite from suffering and frustration. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible has the heading over Romans 8, 18 through 28, from groans to glory. God then will liberate the created order itself from bondage associated with the curse caused by sin. Notice in Romans 8, 20 through 21, that creation's liberation occurs at the time when believers experience their glorious freedom. The glorification then of believers is certain. In fact, Paul even uses a past tense verb to describe our future glorification in Romans 8:30. Thus, in our glorification, believers experience freedom from four frustrations associated with sin. No more suffering, no more the curse of sin, no more human weakness, and now our salvation does not find itself incomplete, but gloriously and wonderfully perfected. Thus, glorification marks the end of suffering, bondage, and weakness. Glorification then necessitates life in a redeemed environment. The Bible calls it the New Jerusalem. Life for glorified believers will be in the context of a community. Uh, there'll be no islands up in heaven with you sitting there by yourself, by yourself. In fact, if you'd like to just be by yourself, you'll probably wind up going to hell where you can be not by yourself with a bunch of people that irritate the sap out of you. So really, you know, if you think, well, I'll get to heaven and I'll just, you know, tune out. No, you won't. I'll come look you up. I'll come just to tick you off and make you. Well, but you can't be miserable. So you'll actually like me in heaven. I'm looking forward to that day because nobody likes me down here today. All right. So the new Jerusalem is a holy, new, prepared city. The place of glory is a city, a garden paradise, a temple. Indeed, the Bible says the very glory of God illuminates this final abode of the glorified what a glorious destiny we anticipate and look forward to. I close with a very sweet story. There was a missionary working among an unreached people group, led many to Christ. And he was in the process of translating the Bible into their native language. When the natives who were translating the Bible, this is in Curtis Vaughn's commentary on 1 John. When the natives got to 1 John 3, 2, and it says, well, we will be like him, but we will see him as he is. Those natives said, we cannot write this. Let us write instead that we will bow to the ground and kiss his feet. They had the right perspective. But praise God, the text says, when we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. Hallelujah. What a salvation. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Heavenly Father, we've moved fast tonight through three wonderful facets of our salvation our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And, Lord, salvation is like a mini-splendored diamond. Each way we turn it, we see something new and something glorious about what you've done for us in Jesus. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. 
If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.